The Westminster Confession into the 21st Century Conference is hosted annually by the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. The seminary's mission is to educate students who love the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, equipping pastors for the ministry of the gospel and preparing others in the church for effective service in His kingdom, all within the framework of the historic Reformed faith. This message is from the conference and is a production of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. To hear more about the seminary or the alliance, stay tuned after this message. Through this partnership, we're able to bring you the conference Westminster Confession into the 21st Century. The advertised schedule for the conference had me speaking on Calvinist resistance theory and the development of limited government and the rule of law. And instead, I'm speaking about what the Westminster standards can tell us about, uh, essentially, about the global warming controversy. <laughs> Now, that's quite a switch. <laughs> well, what happened? Uh, <clears throat> my, my role as national spokesman for the Interfaith Stewardship Alliance has, uh, uh, has uh, pretty well consumed much of my life outside the classroom and the family in the last year. And a couple of months ago, I asked Jerry if I might be permitted to switch to this topic. And uh, having read and endorsed the paper that you have in hand there, uh, uh, Jerry approved, and so here we are. Well, I hope you won't consider it bait and switch. If you're tempted to do so, uh, just think of the, uh, it this way. The Calvinist resistance theorists uh, of the 16th and 17th centuries were political thinkers opposed to the reigning political paradigm of the day, royal absolutism. A, uh, a paradigm uh, with scientific, economic, I'm, I'm sorry, Oh, they, they were opposed to royal absolutism, and they defended civil and religious liberties, limited government, and the rule of law. Well, today I stand before you as a representative of another group that opposes the reigning paradigm of our day, a paradigm with scientific, economic, political, ethical, and even theological implications that threaten liberty by promoting expanding government and the breakdown of the rule of law. As just one illustration of that last point, let me remind you of the news that the United States Supreme Court this week agreed to review a case in which several states and other plaintiffs are suing the Federal Environmental Protection Agency in an effort to force it to define carbon dioxide as a pollutant and so to begin regulating its emission under the Clean Air Act. Now, there are three grounds on which courts can rule at law statutory law, regulatory law, and tort law. The claim that carbon dioxide causes anyone harm such that recovery through litigation is justified is extremely dubious, since carbon dioxide is essential to all life, and enhanced carbon dioxide benefits plant life, on which all animal life depends. Furthermore, to hold the EPA accountable for whatever theoretical harm is claimed is ludicrous in that the EPA in all its activities emits only an infinitesimally small fraction of all human emitted carbon dioxide. And all human emitted carbon dioxide is itself dwarfed by what is naturally emitted. 
tort law as a basis for the suit is therefore absurd. That leaves statutory and regulatory law, but no federal statute and no federal regulatory law defines carbon dioxide as a pollutant, and Congress has refused, despite pressure, to act to define it as such. What this means is that plaintiffs in this case, as radicals on the left have done over and over, having failed to achieve their policy goals through the political process, are trying to get the courts to impose their policy for them. And this is one more in a long series of efforts that undermine the rule of law. So I am standing before you in the tradition of the Calvinist resistance theorists saying we must have the rule of law, not the rule of men. So now perhaps you see why someone who did his PhD on the political thought of a covenanter lawyer and on covenanter resistance theory of the 17th century might find the global warming debate interesting enough to warrant his pouring a great deal of his time and effort into it for the last eight months and indeed to have read heavily on it for about 17 years. So permit me then, if I may, to proceed. It may seem strange to ask what a 370-year-old religious confession can tell us about a scientific and political controversy that erupted less than 30 years ago. But if we think so, perhaps that indicates how prone we are to approaching issues superficially. I believe the Westminster Confession of Faith and its accompanying larger catechism and shorter catechism can teach us much of relevance to the global warming debate, mainly at the level of first principles. I want to draw out just a few illustrations of that for you. Many more, I am thoroughly convinced, can be done, and as I teach social ethics at Knox, I do that. In fact, uh, week after next, I'll be teaching an intensive course for the DMIN program on, uh, called What Every Pastor Needs to Know About Environmental Stewardship, uh, and we will go through much more. But here are just a few examples. The Confession in 4, 1 through 2 tells us it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create, or make of nothing, the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. After God had made all, the, all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, after his own image having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. Now let me draw just a few inferences from this. First of all, the creation displays God's power, wisdom, and goodness. When we consider a claim that a very minor perturbation of Earth's vast and enormously complex climate system could devastate the creatures for which God made it. I believe this part of the confession suggests that such a claim should be met with considerable skepticism. We ought to expect not that Earth is extremely fragile, but that even more than any other system designed by a good engineer, it is meant to withstand some shocks. And second, God created man, male and female, after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures, as the Shorter Catechism 10 tells us. And this implies two things. That man, who is the image of God, reflects God in the immediate context of Genesis 1, 26 through 28, where we first read of God's making man in his image, what we learn most about God is that he is creative. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
by his wisdom, he created a tremendous variety of things, non-living and living, and he made the living things to multiply after their kinds. At the apex of all his creatures, he made man, and man, too, he made to multiply. But he also made man for another purpose, to subdue the earth and to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, and every living thing that moves on the earth, Genesis 1.28. It is part of the original mandate of the creator to his highest creature that that creature should rule the earth. I could go in many directions from this, as I've done in my book, Where Garden Meets Wilderness. I could note that God first placed man in the Garden of Eden, distinct from the rest of the earth, and that it was there that God spoke this blessing and mandate to him, which implies that even before the fall, the rest of the earth was, by comparison with the garden, not what God destined it to be and that he intended man to have a hand in transforming wilderness into garden. I could note that because God cursed the ground after Adam and Eve sinned, and because God intends that Christ as the last Adam will, through his atoning death and vindicating resurrection and, uh, and the redemption and transformation of his elect, deliver the creation from the curse. Therefore, mankind has a God-given role in reversing the effects of that curse. But for the present topic, let me simply point out that this implies that for man to rule the earth is not, as most environmentalists hold, a crime, but a God-given task. We are to be stewards, granted dominion over the earth to subdue and rule it for God's glory, reflecting his image in knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and creativity, and transforming it from wilderness into garden in the process. Part of what we are called to do is to increase the fruitfulness of the earth. You might keep that in mind as we speak later of the effects of carbon dioxide. Another cluster of thoughts. Uh, the confession in 5, 1 through 2 tells us, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Now again, it would be possible to infer many things from this, but let me just raise a couple that are relevant to the global warming debate. The providence of God should be a great comfort to all who trust in him. He teaches us in scripture that he guards his own. Whatever might be happening in the world around us, therefore, <clears throat> the children of God have no need to be alarmed. They ought not to be caught up in fear-driven hysteria. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, and we might add, though they rise or fall. Without ever determining the magnitude of global warming or its effects, including sea level rise or fall, we Christians already know that we need not be afraid. This should equip us to look at evidence more soberly than do those who lack this confidence and assurance. At the same time, our belief in divine providence is no excuse for inaction. 
The confession tells us that God has ordained that things fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. If we are convinced that something presents a serious risk, we ought to find ways to prepare to minimize its harm, uh, to, to, to prevent it or to reduce it, or to minimize its harm if it still occurs. It also requires that we carefully weigh other risks, including those that might be embodied in various proposed responses to a given risk. We turn to another passage in the Confession. 6.1 tells us, Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. As we've already seen, Scripture tells us that God cursed the ground because of our sin, and indeed at one juncture God went so far as to wipe out nearly all life on earth, saving, aside from creatures that live in water, only those aboard the ark with Noah. But after the great flood, God made a covenant with the earth that the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. Genesis 9.15. Now, it would be possible, if we didn't know the character of God, to read this very narrowly, as if God meant, I'll never destroy the earth again with a flood, but I might destroy it with a comet or nuclear winter or global warming. But that would be quite inconsistent with what we know of God. His covenant with the earth was, was, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, was no narrowly construed promise. Rather, the one way he had already destroyed all flesh was by a flood, so he promised not to do that again. But the promise should be read more broadly, as entailing that he would no longer destroy all flesh, period, by whatever means. And this implies that such claims as theoretical quantum physicist and cosmologist Stephen Hawking made within the past week that global warming could turn Earth into another Venus, too hot to sustain any life, uh, these, uh, these claims are inherently unlikely. It would be possible to look at many other elements of the Confession and Catechisms, but let me conclude this part of the talk by reference to the Shorter Catechism's treatment of two of the Ten Commandments to help us with our thinking about policy responses. In questions 68 through 69, the Catechism tells us that the Sixth Commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others, and forbiddeth the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly, or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. This means that we do have a responsibility to foresee, as far as we are able, the risks to which we subject others by our actions, and to minimize those risks. If indeed human-induced global warming threatens others' lives, we have a responsibility to minimize the risk, whether by reducing or preventing the warming or by some other means. In questions 74 through 75, the Catechism tells us that the Eighth Commandment requireth, and this is, a, is something that I'd love for some of our more uh, leftist, simple lifestyle friends to listen to very carefully, the Eighth Commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others, and forbiddeth whatsoever doth or may unjustly hinder our own or our neighbor's wealth and outward estate. Not only the life, then, but also the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and our neighbors ought to be protected and indeed furthered. To the extent that global warming threatens those, we should reduce the risks. Again, either by preventing or reducing the global warming, 
or by enabling people to adapt to it in a way that protects their wealth and outward estate, or, of course, by some combination of the two. Now, having given some attention to these first principles, and I confess that they are too few, and the time is far too little, but time presses, let us try to apply them to our understanding of global warming. Here we must add to first principles some careful attention to both fact and theory. And uh, at this point, by the way, I need to, uh, to pause to thank uh, Dr. Roy Spencer, climatologist at the University of Alabama at Huntsville and an evangelical, Dr. Ross McKittrick, environmental economist at the University of Guelph in Ontario, also an evangelical, and Paul Dreesen, uh, lawyer, energy analyst, and ethicist with the Congress of <coughs> Racial Equality in Washington, D.C., uh, a Jewish man, for their assistance in writing the, uh, the major paper that you have in your packet and on which the rest of this lecture is based. In fact, it is very nearly uh, plagiarized, except that I'm a co-author, so I, uh, I guess that's all right. Uh, so you might want to turn to that uh, and uh, be able to follow along. There will be a place where I skip over a large part of it, and I'll try to alert you to that. But I want to thank them for their assistance with this. Recently, 86 evangelical pastors, college presidents, mission heads, and other leaders signed Climate Change, an Evangelical Call to Action under the auspices of the Evangelical Climate Initiative. By the way, that was a stopgap measure because the NAE had refused to sign such a document. The media made big news out of it. 86 evangelical leaders signed this statement. What the really big news was that the organization that represents 30 million evangelicals refused to sign it. Of course, the media has its own agenda going. The document calls on the federal government to pass national legislation requiring sufficient reductions in carbon dioxide emissions to fight global warming and argues that these are necessary to protect the poor from its harmful effects. In light of all this, many people are puzzled by the Interfaith Stewardship Alliance's opposition to such calls. Do we not care about the prospect of catastrophic global warming? Do we not care that with rising temperatures the polar ice caps will melt and the sea will inundate low island countries and coastal regions? Do we not care that the world's poor might be most hurt by these things? Yes, we care. But we also believe, with economist Walter Williams, that truly compassionate policy requires dispassionate analysis. That's one of the most brilliant statements I've ever seen, and it's an end note to his book, The State Against Blacks. But just memorize that. Truly compassionate policy requires dispassionate analysis. That is the very motive for our opposing drastic steps to prevent global warming. In short, we have the same motive proclaimed by the ECI in its call to action. But motive and reason are not the same thing. It matters little how well we mean if what we do actually harms those we intend to help. That is why we take the positions we do. In a call to truth, prudence, and protection of the poor, an evangelical response to global warming, a document that you have there before you, we present extensive evidence and argument against the extent, the significance, and perhaps the existence of the much-touted scientific consensus on catastrophic human-induced global warming. Further, good science, like truth, is not about counting votes, but about empirical evidence and valid arguments. Therefore, we also present data, arguments, and sources favoring a different perspective. One, 
Foreseeable global warming will have moderate and mixed, not only harmful but also helpful, not catastrophic consequences for humanity, including the poor and the rest of the world's inhabitants. Natural causes may account for a large part, perhaps the majority of the global warming in both the last 30 and the last 150 years, which together constitute an episode in the natural rising and falling cycles of global average temperature. Human, uh, human emissions of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases are probably a minor and possibly an insignificant contributor to its causes. Reducing carbon dioxide emissions would have at most an insignificant impact on the quantity and duration of global warming and would not significantly reduce alleged harmful effects. And for government-mandated carbon dioxide emissions reductions, not only would not significantly curtail global warming or reduce its harmful effects, but also would cause greater harm than good to humanity, especially the poor, while offering virtually no benefit to the rest of the world's inhabitants. In light of all the above, the most prudent response, we argue, is not to try, almost certainly unsuccessfully and at an enormous cost, to prevent or reduce whatever slight warming might really occur. It is instead to prepare to adapt by fostering means that will effectively protect humanity, especially the poor, not only from whatever harms might be anticipated from global warming, but also from harms that might be fostered by other types of catastrophes, natural, uh, natural or man-made. We believe the harm caused by mandated reductions in energy consumption in the quixotic quest to reduce global warming will far exceed its benefits. Reducing energy consumption will require significantly increasing the costs of energy, whether through taxation or by restricting supplies. Because energy is a vital component in, in producing all goods and services people need, raising its cost means raising other prices too. Now, for wealthy people like us, this might, mean, uh, might require some adjustments in consumption patterns, inconvenient and disappointing perhaps, but not devastating. But for the world's two billion or more poor people who can barely afford sufficient food, clothing, and shelter to sustain life, and who are without electricity and the refrigeration, cooking, light, heat, and air conditioning it can provide, it can mean the difference between life and death. So in the remaining time, let me try to support these claims. There are really three main categories of debate over global warming, and here we've got a bit of a transition that you don't have in front of, me, of you, but you'll, you'll catch on shortly. Three main categories of debate over global warming. One, how much of it is driven by human activity, burning fossil fuels and so releasing heat-trapping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Two, how much will temperature rise and what will be the impacts both of the temperature change and of heightened CO2? And three, what is our wisest response? We'll look at these in order. First, most people who are sounding the alarm about global warming and urging that we do something to prevent or reduce it believe that human activity is the major cause of global warming. Is this true? It is possible, under some assumptions, to attribute all recent globally averaged warming to mankind. But our knowledge of climate history also reveals substantial natural variability. The mechanisms driving natural climate variations are too poorly understood to be included accurately in computer climate models. Hence, the models risk overstating human influence. 
Many cite the executive summary of the third assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change as attributing, quote, most of the warming to human activities. However, the executive summary does not reflect the depth of scientific uncertainty embodied in the report and was written by government negotiators, not by the scientific panel itself. Indeed, the wording of the conclusions supplied by the scientific panel at the close of scientific review did not attribute, quote, most warming to humans. Instead, it emphasized the existing uncertainties. Here is what didn't get published. From the body of evidence since IPCC 1996, we conclude that there has been a discernible human influence on global climate. Studies are beginning to separate the contributions to observed climate change attributable to individual external influences, both anthropogenic and natural. This work suggests that anthropogenic greenhouse gases are a substantial contributor to the observed warming, especially over the past 30 years. However, the accuracy of these estimates continues to be limited to by uncertainties in estimates of internal variability, natural and anthropogenic forcing, and the climate response to external forcing." Unquote. While much valuable scientific research is reflected in the IPCC's reports, their executive summaries have been so politicized as to prompt MIT climate scientist and IPCC participant Richard Lindzen to testify before the United States Senate, quote, I personally witnessed co-authors forced to assert their green credentials in defense of their statements, unquote. Further, a number of studies support the conclusion that natural causes, for example, fluctuations in solar output, changes in cloud forcing and precipitation microphysics could outweigh human CO2 emissions as causes of the current global warmth. Other studies find that rising CO2 follows rather than leads global, uh, <coughs> uh, global average temperature or global, global warmth. Excuse me, I've lost it. Follows rather than leads warming and thus is not its cause but might be its effect. In addition, other human activities, for example, land use conversion for agriculture and cities and particulate pollution, cause regional climatic changes that go largely unmentioned. Thus, the human-induced part of the warming trend is only partly driven by CO2 and other man-made greenhouse gases. Recently, 60 topic-qualified scientists asserted that, quote, Global climate changes all the time due to natural causes, and the human impact still remains impossible to distinguish from this natural noise. And they added that observational evidence does not support today's computer climate models, so there is little reason to trust model predictions of the future. In the face of alarms about human-induced global warming, we should ask, how much of the current global warming is man-made versus natural? How much future warming can we reasonably expect? What changes in human behavior that affect climate may be anticipated under what conditions? What difference will such changes make to the world's climate? And what would it actually take to fix the alleged problem? Catastrophic climate scenarios critically depend on the extremely unlikely assumption that global average temperature would rise 6 degrees centigrade, which is about 10.8 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, or more, in response to doubled CO2. 
But more credible estimates of climate sensitivity to doubled CO2 have been in the range of 1.5 to 4.5 degrees centigrade, that is 2.7 to 8.1 degrees Fahrenheit, the IPCC's reports indicating that the most probable magnitude of change is near the lower end of that range. Researchers using several independent lines of evidence asserted that the claim that climate sensitivity actually has as much as a 5% chance of exceeding 4.5 degrees centigrade is not a position that we would care to defend with any vigor, since even if it is hard to formally rule it out, we are unaware of any significant evidence in favor of such a high value. And that was, by the way, stated by people who do believe that global warming is a problem. But they say there is no significant evidence to support the idea that global warming is going to reach, uh, or that climate sensitivity is as much as 4.5 degrees centigrade. It is very unlikely that warming in that range would cause catastrophic consequences. Why? Among other reasons, because at least according to the computer climate models on which the alarms are based, CO2-induced warming will occur mostly in winter, mostly in polar regions, and mostly at night. But in polar regions where winter night temperatures range far below freezing, like in the negative 50, 60, and 70 degrees range, uh, an increase of 5.4 degrees Fahrenheit is hardly likely to cause significant melting of polar ice caps or other problems. The amount of warming in any given locale would be well within the range of historic local variation. Nonetheless, many people still claim that global warming will have catastrophic impacts. Let's examine those impacts one by one. Sea level rise. Contrary to, very, to, to visions of seawater inundating vast areas, model average results from a mid-range scenario of the IPCC, a scenario that itself probably exaggerates warming, suggest a rise by AD 2100 of only about uh, 1.27 feet. The rate of rise would be only 1.524 inches per decade, to which the few coastal settlements actually threatened could readily adapt by building dikes and seawalls. Further, sea level has been rising for centuries, since long before Earth began to recover from the Little Ice Age, about 1550 to 1850, and long before fossil fuel burning could possibly have contributed to global warming. Through the 20th century, it rose about 18 hundredths of a meter, 7.08 inches, and there is no reason to think the natural forces driving that rise will cease. Even assuming that the IPCC's projection of 21st century sea level rise is correct then, only about half of that rise would be attributable to current global warming, and in turn only a fraction of that to human-induced warming. Further, of the costs to the Netherlands, Bangladesh, and various Pacific islands, that is, the places at greatest risk from sea level rise, the costs of adapting to the changes in sea level are trivial compared with the costs of a global limitation of CO2 emissions to prevent global warming. But other people fear more frequent heat waves. Though there is reason to doubt this prediction, its significance arises only from its impact on health and mortality. Heat-related death rates decline as people learn how and become better able to afford to protect themselves from excessive heat. For example, while a heat wave in Chicago in 1995 caused about 700 heat-related deaths, a nearly identical one only four years later caused only about 100 because of better advance warning from weather forecasters and protective steps. 
In addition, heat wave-related deaths are usually simply deaths of the already dying, accelerated by literally just a few days. In the days following a rise in death rates because of a heat wave, there is normally an offsetting decline to below normal death rates. Heat waves, in other words, displace deaths, but do not cause extra ones. Further, those who warn of more frequent heat waves should even more fervently herald less frequent severe cold snaps. The death rate from severe cold is nearly 10 times as high as that from severe heat, implying that global warming, assuming that it reduces cold snaps as much as it increases heat waves, which seems uh, intuitively sensible, should prevent more deaths from cold than it causes from heat. Yet, people fear more frequent droughts and extreme weather events such as torrential rains and floods, like the floods that have just made the news in our East Coast areas. Actual projections assuming IPCC forecast global warming call for more frequent droughts in some places, less frequent droughts in others, more frequent wet periods in some places, and less frequent wet periods in others. It is not possible at the present state of the science to be sure whether there will be a net increase of either droughts or wet periods globally or in most locales. However, while worldwide data are insufficient to justify any generalizations, we do know that there is no statistical correlation between global average temperature and droughts in the southwestern United States or even the United States as a whole, a fact that puts the model forecasts into doubt. Further, in an increasingly wealthy world, the ability to distribute water and agricultural products efficiently will continue to improve, making societies more and more resilient to droughts, which will continue to occur with or without human influence on climate. Others are afraid of increased tropical diseases in now-temperate regions. Now, since the mosquitoes that carry Plasmodium falciparum, the malaria-causing parasite, require winter temperatures above about 61 to 64 degrees Fahrenheit to survive, it seems intuitively likely that expanding the regions with winter lows above that range would result in increasing malaria rates. However, even in very cold climates, there are places sheltered from cold in which the mosquitoes can hibernate. Thus, malaria was, a, was common throughout Europe and even into the Arctic Circle, even during the Little Ice Age, and continued common through the end of World War II in Finland, Poland, Russia, around the Black Sea, and in 36 of the United States, including all northern border states from Washington through New York. It is not temperatures that are most important for malaria control, but elimination of suitable breeding grounds and the use of pesticides to lower the population of malarial mosquitoes and keep them out of homes. The IPCC suggested on the basis of mathematical models that by the 2080s, global warming could put about 2 to 4% more people at risk for malaria. What this means is that 96 to 98 percent of people at risk for malaria at that point would be at risk because of non-climate change related factors. In other words, the impacts of climate change on malaria, at least through 2085, will be trivial compared to non-climate change related factors. The IPCC also noted that most of those newly at risk would be in middle or high-income countries where infrastructure and health services would make infection and death or serious disability unlikely. Thus, the global study of actual malaria transmission shows remarkably few changes, even under the most extreme scenarios. 
the resurgence of malaria in some African and Asian countries recently correlates not with changing temperatures, but with the banning of DDT and shifts to less effective disease control methods, and it costs over a million premature deaths annually, mostly among women and little children. Some people fear hurricanes that are more intense. The recent upswing in numbers and intensity of Atlantic hurricanes makes some people more receptive to claims that global warming might have such an effect. And as a resident of South Florida, I understand their concerns. However, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration concluded in a study announced in November 2005 that, quote, the tropical multi-decadal cycle, or signal, is, is causing the increased Atlantic hurricane activity since 1995 and is not related to greenhouse warming. More specifically, claims of linkages between global warming and hurricane impacts are premature for three reasons. First, no connection has been established between greenhouse gas emissions and the observed behavior of hurricanes. Second, the peer-reviewed literature reflects that a scientific consensus exists that any future changes in hurricane intensities will likely be small in the context of observed variability. While the scientific problem of tropical cyclogenesis is so far from being solved that little can be said about possible changes in frequency of hurricanes. And third, under the assumptions of the IPCC, expected future damages to society of its projected changes in the behavior of hurricanes are dwarfed by the influence of its own projections of growing wealth and population. We have been in a cyclical lull in Atlantic hurricane activity for several decades, during which our coastlines have seen rapid growth in population and infrastructure. It is thus the presence of more property in harm's way not a historically unprecedented increase in frequency or intensity of hurricanes that explains rising economic losses from hurricanes. The National Hurricane Center, whose former director, Neil Frank, by the way, has endorsed our statement, has warned that we, are, were, we were overdue for a return to greater activity similar to what occurred in the 1930s to the 1950s. Emphasis on a possible human connection distracts from the very real issue that people need to be prepared for hurricane activity, whether or not hurricanes' frequency, intensity, or duration are affected by man-made greenhouse gases. And finally, people are afraid of reduction in agricultural output, especially in poor countries. Observational evidence and computer models yield little confidence in forecasts of the impact of global warming on agricultural production, whether in poor countries or elsewhere. However, rising CO2, presumably what drives global warming, enhances agricultural yield. For every doubling of atmospheric CO2 concentration, there is an average 35% increase in plant growth efficiency. Plants grow better in warmer and colder temperatures, and in drier and wetter conditions, and they are more resistant to diseases and pests. Consequently, their ranges and yields increase. Agricultural productivity worldwide and in developing countries has never been higher than it is today. Three likely results of rising CO2 are shrinking deserts, lower food prices, and reduced demand for agricultural land to feed the world's population, the latter resulting in reduced pressure on habitat and consequently on species survival. These benefits would be reduced or foregone if we intentionally reduced uh, atmospheric CO2. In sum, claims that human-induced global warming is not only real but also bound to become catastrophic either misread the IPCC's reports or 
following the example of the media and politicians, uncritically rely on its summary for policymakers. The summary, as already noted, does not reflect the scientific uncertainty contained in the body of the report, was not agreed to by the vast majority of IPCC scientists, and was politically driven. Claims of dangerous or catastrophic global warming are founded primarily on outlier models that present far more extreme scenarios than the vast majority. These outlier models can neither predict even one year into the future nor reconstruct one year into the past. They produce scenarios with no basis in actual evidence. They are based on grossly unrealistic assumptions about future energy use, dominant energy types, pollution levels, economic development, and other factors that do not reflect current facts or likely future situations. Mainstream media generally report on worst-case scenarios and assume that warming will be catastrophic and will bring devastating harm but no benefits. The ECI's statement follows that model. There is evidence that the current warming period from the mid-1800s to the present and likely to continue for a century or more is driven largely by natural causes. Major, uh, <clears throat> major global and regional climate changes of equal or greater magnitude, the Roman and medieval warm periods, the Little Ice Age, and civilization-killing droughts in the Yucatan and the American Southwest, not to mention the Ice Ages and interglacial periods, are known to have occurred in the complete absence of any significant human impact. Well, finally, what is our wisest response to fears about global warming? The most widely promoted response to global warming is the Kyoto Protocol, an international treaty signed by the Clinton administration, never ratified by the Senate, and repudiated by the Bush administration, requiring severe reductions in carbon dioxide emissions in an effort to reduce global warming. Compliance with the protocol would cost the world economy from $300 billion to $1 trillion per year. To give you some sense of proportion, for only about $250 billion spent only once, not every year, drinking water purification and sewage sanitation could be provided for the roughly 2 billion people in the world who lack them now. Over the 50 years from 2000 through 2050, that means 17 to $50 trillion to try to comply with Kyoto. Yet full compliance would reduce global warming by less than 0.2 degree Fahrenheit by 2050, an amount so tiny as to disappear in annual fluctuation and with no significant impact on consequences. As a result, Kyoto's key supporters also say that Kyoto is just a first step, that we shall need many, perhaps 40 more such treaties, each more costly than the last to prevent catastrophic global warming. It is impossible to calculate with any confidence the actual amount that would cost the world economy. But since initial emissions cuts would be cheapest, and every deeper level of cuts afterward would be more costly, it would stand to reason that compliance with 40 levels of Kyoto-type agreements would reduce global economic production not by $300 billion to $1 trillion per year, but by $12 trillion to over $40 trillion per year, or 27 to 91% of world gross product. As Richard Lindzen put it, should a catastrophic scenario prove correct, Kyoto will not prevent it. If we view Kyoto as an insurance policy, it is a policy where the premium appears to exceed potential damages and where the coverage extends to only a small fraction of the potential damages. Does anyone really want this? I suspect not. Moreover, we still must determine how harmful CO2 emissions are and, thus, the benefits of reducing them. But as we've seen, many scientists, especially agriculturalists, believe that CO2 should not be classed as a pollutant at all, 
because of its benefits to plant growth. Even assuming that CO2 is a pollutant, it is simply impossible at the present state of the science to estimate with any reasonable degree of confidence how much harm and benefit is done by each ton emitted and the balance between the two, harm and benefit. Church leaders, evangelicals in particular, are concerned about climate change primarily because they fear its potential impacts on the world's poor, especially in the tropics. However, forecasts of things like precipitation and temperature change over long time horizons in particular regions are simply not possible. If the aim is to help the poor, what matters from the policy point of view is supporting the development process by which countries acquire greater ability to deal with adverse economic, climatic, and social conditions, regardless of cause. Put simply, poor countries need income growth, trade liberalization, and secure supplies of reliable, low-cost electricity. Rather than focusing on theoretically possible changes in climate, which varies tremendously anyway with El Nino, La Nina, and other natural cycles. We should emphasize policies such as affordable and abundant energy that will help the poor prosper, thus making them less susceptible to the vagaries of weather and other threats in the first place. The harms caused by mandatory CO2 emissions reductions will almost certainly outweigh the benefits, especially to the poor, for whom the marginal increases in prices will be a much greater burden than for the rich. The world's poor are much better served by enhancing their wealth through economic development than by whatever minute reductions might be achieved in future global warming by reducing CO2 emissions. It is difficult to imagine how it could possibly be that, as the Evangelical Climate Initiative claims, the basic task for all of the world's inhabitants is to find ways now to begin to reduce the carbon dioxide emissions from the burning of fossil fuels that are the primary cause of human-induced climate change. I thought the basic task was preaching the gospel. Millions of poor people in developing countries die every year because they lack clean water and indoor plumbing, electricity forcing them to burn wood and dung for cooking and heating and to live without refrigeration and air conditioning. They lack sewage treatment, jobs, access to affordable medical care and adequate nutrition, not to mention just and orderly legal and economic systems. Not only will the policies proposed by the ECI not solve any of these real, present, and vast problems, but instead they will slow down and in some cases prevent their being solved, all for the sake of responding to speculative and likely exaggerated risks far in the future through measures that would be ineffective anyway. It is immoral and harmful to Earth's poorest citizens to deny them the benefits of abundant, reliable, affordable electricity and other forms of energy for homes, cars, airplanes, and factories merely because it is produced by using fossil fuels. Foreseeable forms of renewable energy other than hydroelectric won't provide reliable, affordable electricity, at least for many years, in amounts that are adequate and necessary for modern hospitals, factories, homes, communities, and nations. To tell poor families, communities, and nations that they can't develop hydroelectric or nuclear energy either because some people disapprove of them is unconscionable. We agree that it is wise to pursue increasing energy efficiency through the development of new technologies. But a program that can only be done by government mandate, like that promoted by the ECI, is by definition not a program that the market deems cost-effective. And we believe that the market is a better judge of cost-effectiveness than bureaucrats and politicians. 
What are needed are prudent policies that reflect actual risks, costs, and benefits, an honest evaluation of sound scientific, economic, and technological data, and unbiased application of moral, ethical, and theological principles. Many environmentalists argue that developed and developing nations alike must stop using fossil fuels. They thus oppose coal and natural gas-fired electrical generating plants. But because they also oppose hydroelectric and nuclear facilities, they leave developing countries no alternative to more expensive, presently less efficient energy technologies like solar and wind, technologies that do not represent the required baseload or dependable power source needed by societies for energy security. The very fact that such higher-cost technologies are not widely used in rich countries testifies that they cannot be widely used in poor ones. Fossil fuels, then, should be seen as a proper stage in energy development, far safer than burning wood and dung, smoke from which claims 1.6 million lives per year, and a means of enabling the economic growth that eventually can make even cleaner technologies affordable. Stopping or reversing economic development in the world's poor countries, which drastic restrictions on fossil fuel use would cause, would keep poor nations impoverished. It would perpetuate what South Africa's Leon Lowe calls human game preserves, where Western tourists can see cute indigenous people at one with their environment and the wildlife. But what climate activist, indeed, what signer of climate change and evangelical call to action, would willingly, for even a month, live in a mud hut in malaria-infested rural Africa under the indigenous conditions their policy prescription would perpetuate? Who among them would be glad to drink the locals' contaminated water, eat their paltry mold-infested food, breathe the smoke from their wood and dung fires, live 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, without lights, air conditioning, and refrigeration. Who among them would work all day in the fields amid swarms of diseased mosquitoes and tsetse flies and swelter under bed nets trying to sleep when the temperature in the hut is 90 degrees and inside the bed net 100 degrees, all without bug spray, pesticides, and anti-malaria pills? Who among them would be prepared to walk 20 miles to the nearest clinic, carrying their sick or dying child with them when they inevitably come down with the fever, chills, and convulsions of acute malaria? That way of life, or rather death, is the real, though unintended, impact of mandated reductions in carbon dioxide emissions to, future, to, uh, to fight global warming. Responsible discussion of a proposed policy to deal with any problem requires comparing its costs and benefits with those of alternative policies to deal not just with the same problem, but also with other problems. Every prescription is likely to have both positive and negative consequences for different aspects of the environment, different species, different regions, and different groups of people. Therefore, we commend the approach of the Copenhagen Consensus and we hope our evangelical brothers and sisters and all who are concerned not just about global warming but about other threats to human and planetary well-being will study it carefully. And I really would urge you to take a look at that footnote and uh, then go to that source sometime and learn what these many Nobel Prize winning economists say are the most efficient uses of money to try to help humankind. Sixteen years ago, the Oxford Declaration on Christian Faith and Economics made this crucial point. 
We deplore economic systems based on policy law, policies, laws, and regulations whose effect is to favor privileged minorities and to exclude the poor from fully legitimate activities. Such systems are not only inefficient but are immoral as well in that participating in and benefiting from the formal economy depends on conferred privilege of those who have access and influence to public and private institutions rather than on inventiveness and hard work. Actions need to be taken by public and private institutions to reduce and simplify the requirements and costs of participating in the national economy. Today, we stand with the Oxford Declaration in deploring policies, laws, and regulations whose effect is to favor the already wealthy at the, at the expense of the still poor, excluding them from legitimate development of and legitimate participation in advanced economies and all the benefits they deliver, such as lower infant and child mortality rates, longer life expectancy, lower disease rates, more and better education, transportation, communication, and all the other things the already wealthy take for granted. Therefore, we at the Interfaith Stewardship Alliance pledge to oppose quixotic attempts to reduce global warming. Instead, constrained by the love of Jesus Christ for the least of these and by the evidence presented above, we vow to teach and act on the truths communicated here for the benefit of all our neighbors. And we invite you to join us by endorsing that statement. You have been listening to the Westminster Confession into the 21st Century, a production of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals in partnership with Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. The Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary's mission is to educate students who love the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, equipping pastors for the ministry of the gospel, and preparing others in the church for effective service in His kingdom, all within the framework of the historic Reformed faith. For more information on the seminary, call 1-866-778-7338. That's one 1- or you can write to 7418 Penn Avenue, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 15208, or visit online at www.rpts.edu. The Alliance is a listener-supported ministry that's known for teaching such as the Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy, as well as the nationally syndicated broadcasts, the Bible Study Hour, Every Last Word, God's Living Word, or Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible. For more information on the Alliance, call 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. Or you can write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Or visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring a wealth of materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry.